Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show that inspires designers to think beyond pixels. I'm your host, Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I sit down with creatives to talk about their stories, lessons they've learned during their careers, and how you can use design to make a bigger impact in your organization. Today, we're talking to Jane Austen, Director of Design at Babylon Health. Jane shares with us her opinions on what's the most crucial aspect of being a design leader, quantifying the value of our design work, and what we can do to support designers who are just starting out. Jane, I really appreciate you being in the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. You, you've been with Babylon Health for a couple of years now, and I'm sure you've got a lot to share about building teams and design leadership and all that. So we are going to be talking about all those cool topics today. But first, why don't you give us you know, a, a quick background of yourself and how you ended up being in the role you are today? I'm not quite sure how far you want me to go back. I'll, I'll try and I'll go back quite far because it is interesting and I'll try and canter along quickly to get to the present day. Um, I've got a degree, a master's degree actually, in philosophy, which meant I was completely unemployable. And I went traveling around, around Eastern Europe and uh, Portugal and Europe, various other places, teaching English as a foreign language. So all these poor people they were actually learning Scottish, thinking they were learning English. And then I came back to London and I got a job teaching refugees English. And this shows how long ago it was. The, um, it was for a government college and they invested all this money in an ICT suite um, for the poor refugees to learn English. But the CD-ROMs were so badly designed and everybody was getting really frustrated and upset. I got onto a free course to program director at the college we did the CD-ROMs and discovered actually there was a thing called usability and that this was a huge problem. I had no idea that this was even a thing and I used the CD-ROMs as um, like a portfolio to get onto a second master's um, which was called Hypermedia. I really am showing my age. And then from there I got a job in a, um, a really nice studio, um, a big creative agency in Shoreditch which went spectacularly bankrupt set up my own agency. So I phoned their clients and asked them if they had anybody looking after them. So it was like DNAD and Channel 4 and the Design Museum and Conrad. So some amazing clients. And we didn't make a penny, uh, not a penny. We just like, I was too embarrassed to ask for money. I didn't understand how business worked. It was an absolute disaster. So from there, I got a job in another agency. And then I went um, client side because that's when I discovered actually what product design was. It was owning a product and iterating on it. It wasn't just kind of doing usability at the end of the process. It's like starting um, with product people from the beginning to to craft something that people actually wanted. So that was at a trading company, sort of online trading platform, which was insanely complex. I left there because it actually kind of sickened myself. It was actually more like um, gambling than trading. And went to the government digital service, which was just amazing. I learned so much at GDS. I worked with some of the best people in the world. They went to the Telegraph. Um, we rebuilt everything at the Telegraph. And then they decided that we had built all the things. So they didn't need a product team. They just needed to market the things. So we all got made redundant. And then I went to Moo, wonderful company making business cards. And then I followed my boss, Chad, from Moo to Babylon Health, where I am now. We're a sort of an AI-powered healthcare, not really a startup anymore, a scale-up. And the mission is to provide affordable and accessible healthcare to the world. Yeah, thank, thanks for that, Jane. Really quick, really to the point. I love that. Uh, you said one thing that was really interesting, which is 
you've learned a lot at GDS. And a lot of the designers that I've uh, spoken to around London uh, and who have worked for the government keep mentioning the same thing. Like, oh, I've learned so much working for the government, which is probably not a thing you would say in a lot of, uh, let's say, more forward-thinking industries. So what were some of the, the things that you've learned at GDS? But GDS, um, I learned, I think, the power about having a mission and having some really clear-sighted people at the top of driving that mission. Um, I learned the power of doing research early and often, and that research was a tool for everybody to understand the customer. So they had mandated contact hours. Everybody had to see the um, view people using their product. They supported people, so people outside of GDS to come along on the journey. They had were having an incredible impact on people's lives. So I, the people who redesigned the new passport service, it's amazing. Uh, I actually saw them starting work on that, starting work with really understanding people's needs, why they had to do well, this online service, and then building out from needs and making sure everything was clear and simple and doing the hard work to make it simple. They had values that were up everywhere, so you kept you were able to make really clear decisions. And then the way they did Agile, it wasn't just like, a, what's it called, Fragile or a bit like Waterfall with some stand-ups. It was proper Agile where people were collaborating really well. The teams were really well-structured. We had lots of retros and the people themselves. So I worked with Lisa Rickeltler, who's amazing. Um, and just they had the space as well to to really do considered very good work. The, the problem being in a startup or somewhere commercial, often everything's an MVP, and that's really frustrating. But at GDS, they, they finished what they started and they released products which were a complete step change, uh, well, services rather than product, but an absolute complete step change in what had gone before. And setting standards that the rest of government followed. It was just a joy to work there. Was there any difference, or now looking back, you've worked for the government, you've worked for a lot of private companies, any difference in working or in how design is being applied for, at the government versus how it is applied in, in private companies? It's an interesting question. I think at the government, really, a lot of the battle have been already won. Um, can't remember the lady's name from last minute. Oh, gosh, that's terrible. I'll come back to that. She'd written a, a report into why government had to be more digital. So the battle had been of this had already been won. And then secondly, they'd said the people who set up GDS had a, a system and a process. And that battle had already been won. And they understood the importance of research and of design. But very often in private organisations, they don't understand design. They think design is making things look pretty. I remember once getting interviewed for a job and the product manager said to me, oh, yes, I love design. It's where the magic happens. And I thought, oh, this is a place I don't want to work. He thinks design is some kind of like creative genius in a cupboard doing magic when actually it's a, a rigorous process. So I think that's what I learned at GDS. It's design is a rigorous process that you follow that's based on customer needs and it results in something really good rather than you're turning up and colouring in some stakeholders' ideas, which is often what happens in the private sector. So for design to work well, you need stakeholders to understand the impact and you need to be able to do regular research and to iterate. And rather than hippos, highest paid person in the organisation coming and dictating what you should do. At GDS, it was the opposite. You started with customers or citizens and worked up from there so I think the difference is where the power is and what battles had already been won 
and having the space to for design to actually prove itself rather than just coming at the end and colouring in. That's not everywhere, but a lot of companies are still like that remarkably. So you said one thing that I'd like to unpack a little bit, which was one of the things that's required is for stakeholders to understand the impact. And I'm sometimes wondering whether that's something that we as designers on the ground can do more towards. So to me, it always comes back to transparency. It's sometimes very difficult for stakeholders in the business to understand what you're doing when you're working in silos or you know, you, you, you go away and you work and then a month later you come uh, back for a grand reveal or something like that. So do you think being more transparent at work would help more stakeholders understand what it is we're doing? Absolutely. There's so much you can do to work with stakeholders from the start actually doing, turning your UX and your design processes on the stakeholders. So not just having empathy for your end users, but having empathy for your stakeholders. So just doing, interviewing them, doing empathy maps, trying to understand what they're thinking and feeling, and be able to ch- channel or create your messages in a way that resonates with them and solves the problems that they're having, that reassures them. Um, to speak in the language of business is really, really important. I've just finished, but we get paid money to do training at Babylon. And I decided this year I wasn't going to do any additional training in design. I did um, a course on how to be a non-executive director, which was a five-day course. And it was almost like a mini MBA. And it helped me understand strategy, the, the pressures that businesses are under, the how like, um, finance is operating, um, and that was really, really helpful because it means that I can now couch what I'm doing in uh, uh, the language of the stakeholders. And then you design with the stakeholders. You have, you maybe have some quick wins to build credibility, or you have a project that you you make sure that they are you bring them along on the journey with you, so they understand what you're doing. And that's where product is a phenomenal ally. You should be working really closely with product and tech all the way through the process. And product people are very good at translating design into the business. But you have to make sure that you don't sort of hide behind the product person and let them do all the talking for you. You have to go out there and try and build that relationship with the stakeholders and be able to, for them to understand the impact that you're having. So you said a bit earlier that you've started, you started this, um, this agency and then you didn't make a penny off of it because you didn't necessarily understand the, the business side of it. So how has... I don't want to call it failure, but how has that period of not being able to make that agency work helped you later on during your career? Has that taught you something specific that you've used later on? Quite a few things. One of the first things was I felt like weirdly guilty about asking for money for my work. Like clients would come and they would make ask for all of these changes. And then I would think, well, I, I didn't get it right first time. So I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't ask them for any money, which was just crazy. And that I felt sort of weirdly guilty that I wasn't actually working, uh, that I was somehow just enjoying myself so much that I shouldn't be asking for money for what I was doing that I was enjoying so much. So this weird guilt and strange feelings about money, that helped me sort of reflect on that and think, why Why should I? Why did I feel so guilty and weird about asking for money for my work? That's really helped. The other thing uh, is having much more structure in projects, so really understanding what you have to do, really pinning it down, really being very clear about the processes and what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, rather than sort of like being buffeted by stakeholders, being able to be much more structured about your interactions and sort of almost protect yourself, that really helped. Uh, And I think, yeah, just understanding the importance of business, it's difficult to make money. And that gave me a lot of empathy for going to work in these different companies and trying to understand how do they make money? What what can I do that impacts 
their business. So this helped it when I was at Moo, which was an e-commerce business, trying to understand which product had the best margin, which one um, would be best for us to try and encourage the customer to buy. And then doing designs, which trying to, well, not like dark patterns, but tried to showcase products which had the better margin, which were going to impact the business. So taking that knowledge of the business and applying it to design is definitely something that I took from that. I think that you've said something that will help us segue a bit into a topic that I want to discuss. You said you felt guilty for charging for design. And I think I can relate to that. And I've I talked to a lot of people who, who do the same. And you see a lot of people, especially freelancers, who are struggling to, to charge proper money for their work. And I think a lot of times this goes back to not necessarily understanding the value of what you can offer. Because if you talk to an architect, a lawyer, an electrician, a house builder, they don't feel guilty for charging you money because they understand the value they can provide. And they also understand I provide you some value, you need to pay for it. But I think with design, coming from an art background where you don't really solve a problem, you don't really bring any value per se, any tangible value. I think we still oftentimes think of our work as not necessarily valuable. And, and I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about how can we quantify what it is we're doing or can we quantify what it is we're doing? I think it's a fantastic question. Maybe there's sort of two parts to that. The first one, I think, is just not uh, because we we're come often from an arts background, as you say, business or commerce seems quite alien, and we're we're not taught about it. And particularly, I came from a I come from a working class family where we didn't really like have that sort of entrepreneurial background or understand about charging about things. It was completely alien to me. And I think perhaps if you come from a professional family where your parents work for a large company rather than being self-employed it may be alien to you it's not something that you're taught at school you're not taught it as part of your degree course it's just very uncomfortable and as British people we're a bit uncomfortable about money altogether so I've actually had been taught by an American friend of mine about how to be much more confident and articulate about money and I think that's maybe something all of us should do is go and find a really assertive American friend to teach you to ask for money because it's painful until you do it a few times um, the second question was about yeah, how can you prove your value? That's another, that's another fantastic point. You, we sh- you should be starting a project, particularly now that we're working in collaborative cross-functional teams, particularly if you're working in a, a product organisation, you should be starting your project with ideas of what the success metric should be from the start. So is it that you want more adoption, more people using the feature, or is it you're going to be able to sell more? Rather than just randomly designing something, you should be part of that conversation from the beginning to understand why the company is investing its time in this this team to build something. And design should not see themselves as a a sort of thing separate from that, but as part of the cross-functional team that has been able to justify its existence. Because you don't often hear engineers debating of like, you know, what's my value? So actually being allying yourself with engineers and product people as a group understanding what your success metrics are as a cross-functional team and then proving that you've been able to deliver them. That's a really good way to go about it rather than sort of extracting design from the whole thing and saying, yes, look at our ROI. You're not, you're as a designer in a product organisation, you're part of a group of people responsible for a feature or for a set of customers or something. And so you should understand why you're building this from the start. So off the back of that, how do you empower your teams to do that because it's one thing to have it at a conversation level and say I think we should do that and it's a whole other thing to implement a whole mindset in the in the minds of you know a team of however 10 15 20 designers I don't even know but how, how do you empower your team on a daily basis to do exactly that 
if you look at the role of a sort of manager or a leader in a product organization, it's quite different to how it's gone before. In the past, you might have a manager responsible for a group of people and telling them what to do and sort of directing their work. It doesn't work like that anymore. In in sort of uh, cross-functional, agile, product-led companies, the role of a manager is more like a servant leader, that you're there to promote people and to empower them and to make sure that they have the tools to do their job, that you're able to perhaps the, the coaching, help them understand what they've got to do, but you don't tell them what to do. Their responsibility is to work with t- product and tech and to understand what their roadmap is, to use research to understand what they need to build, to use research to see if they've validated what they've built and to collaborate really well with product and technology. The way that design works now, I think, is to be a partner and to be, there should be like a really healthy tension between product, tech and design. So design should be focusing on the customer for the problem to solve. Tech should be focusing on feasibility and product should be thinking about the business requirements. And between the three the three groups of people, you that tension results in some really good decisions. And that's what you should be trying to support as a leader or a manager in a product organization, how to give your team confidence to make these decisions, to confidence to be assertive and have really good discussions with product people, to make sure that there is enough designers to be able to be um, have these conversations. And that's where things get difficult, is when you're in an organization and there's nothing you can do about it, but there's not enough designers. So they end up not being able to look forward enough to be able to do discovery. So then they get work sort of handed to them and then they have to just execute rather than really thinking about it. That's the place perhaps you can push back as a leader, but not always, because that's where organizations become very difficult to work for, where decisions are sort of handed down from the top. And that might segue to another question that I know we were discussing prior to um, starting this podcast, which is like, you know, what's a good and a bad organization to work for? So a good organization is one where the teams are empowered to make their decisions. There's a good structure. People know what outcomes they have to build. There's consistency. So there's kind of guardrails around consistency, like the design system and processes. But the teams are within this structure, are able to, they're told, what they need to, what outcomes they need to achieve, and they can decide how to do it. And that kind of bottom-up, but very supported, autonomous structure, you get really great results. Where designers become really fed up and disempowered and burnt out is where sort of diktats are handed down from the top. They've just got to build a feature. They don't quite know why they've got to build a feature. They don't get to do discovery, and they become feature factories. That's that's a bad organisation in a place where it's really difficult to do good design. So let's stay on that topic. I, I think, and let's talk hiring a little bit, but let's talk hiring from the perspective of, of a designer. So when you when you go to an interview, obviously you need to do well enough to prove to the people you're sitting in front of that you have what it takes to work there. But there's also the other side of the story, which is that organization also needs to, quote unquote, prove to you that they are right for you. And sometimes it's really, really difficult when you just have brief interactions with people in a company you're interviewing for to know whether that company is fit for you or not, uh, whether you would actually enjoy working there or not. So how do you go about doing that? From the perspective of a designer, one of the things you should look at is glass doors. Glass doors kind of gives you a a glimpse. Um, Oh, there's a terrible expression an old boss of mine used to say is opening the kimono. So (laughs) open the kimono, it's a terrible, terrible expression, but I suppose that's what glass doors does. 
it helps see the inside the truth of the organization and it's a, it's an amazing tool definitely one to be used also maybe see the kind of people that are working there do they talk or do they blog um, do they, are they people that are respected then actually in the interview i think oh sorry and when you're looking at people that work there maybe you know somebody or you can have a chat to them just be a little bit of a detective and do some digging and then in the interview a lot of people don't realize it's a two-way street you're not there just to prove you can do the job it's also to make sure that that job is right for you so there's lots of questions you can ask like why is the role open um how do you decide what to build is a really that's a really fantastic question because that's when you know if it's going to be a feature factory or or people are a bit more empowered ask about how the teams are set up um so that you want to make sure that you're in cross-functional squads ask about how much research is done so do people just build stuff um, or is it actually based on needs and do they validate it the um what else or I suppose that where does power lie? You know, sometimes you've got organisations where everybody, you've got very senior engineering people dictating things. Uh, that might be a hard one to answer. People haven't really thought about it. And also, like, you know, how do you iterate? If, if it's a place where it's your permanent MVP, that's a dreadful place to be a designer. Again, people get burnt out. So just asking people how your products evolve, what basis you're evolving from. Um, and then maybe ask if you... you Ideally, meet some other people in the team. Maybe go and ask if you can go for a coffee for with them. If you get through to that point, though, definitely you need to validate that this is the place you're going to be spending at least the next two years of your life, probably more time than you will be spending with your family. So it's really important to make sure that's a right fit. And that's another thing being assertive about making sure that you value your time as well as asking for money. And this is this place the right, the right organisation for me to give the gift of my time to. Cool. So we've got it from the perspective of a designer. Let's just twist it and talk from the perspective of a company because you've probably interviewed hundreds of designers by this point. You've said yes or no to hundreds. So let's try to extract some patterns of what people do really well in interviews that impresses you and then what people always kind of seem to be stumbling upon uh, as negative step uh, when they are in front of you. What I look for in an interview is so I don't give tasks. I think tasks are really, really unfair way to assess people. It, for a start, it can often rule out people who have family commitments or who have chronic illnesses who might not have the energy to do this and you ruling out some potentially fantastic candidates. So it's, I think it's a daft thing to do. Although if you want to keep doing it, it means my candidate feels bigger. So, so what I do instead is try and look for signals to see how somebody works and what they would be like as a colleague and so for that we are we ask people who interview with us to talk through two or three previous projects um, so first we give them like a brief we explain the problems that or um, structure that we have in our company what kind of thing they might be working on who they might be working with challenges they might have and ask them to go and think about a couple of projects that they're really proud of that talk to the kind of role that they will be doing. And then they come in and present to a panel. And there we like to see a story. We like to see that people have followed a good process. Maybe they got something wrong and they learned from it, that something surprised them, that they think about things deeply, that they collaborated well. So we have a sort of set of questions that we use to see if someone's going to be as a teammate because modern product design is so much about collaboration and about good decision making so we look for those signals and then we just um 
we then would have like a we call it a culture fit. I like to think about it as a culture ad. So what makes that person who they are and what strengths do they have that they can bring to the team? And it's really good to focus on strengths rather than weaknesses. So what is what's value add? What's our cultural ad is that person bringing to the team? So the mistakes I've seen is where people, uh, well, to tell you the word of the worst mistakes I've seen is somebody actually presented a bit of work back to me in a portfolio that they hadn't done that I had. <laughs> I know, can you believe it? That was years and years ago, though. But I've heard stories of similar things happening at other times. I think so, perhaps the worst things people can do is is just present work where they've not really, they, you know, they've been, they haven't really looked at customer needs. They've not really thought about what they're designing. They focus too much on shiny, shiny, beautiful stuff rather than actually thinking about creating a, a product where people perhaps haven't learned anything. So we ask people to reflect back on the project and say, what would you do differently? And you would always do something differently. If people would say nothing, we think, well, that person perhaps hasn't got the growth mindset that you need to succeed. So it's those kind of subtleties that we look for because we've got so many fantastic designers that apply to us. So there, there are subtleties about what people's well, aptitude and potential. It's important to hire for potential rather than reality. So I know that you wrote a couple of years ago an article in Medium where you explicitly stated that you think that your your main job as a design leader is hiring. That is your number one job. So first, why? And second, how do you bring good designers in front of you? Because putting a job ad on the website is not enough anymore. So you must be doing some things to be able to bring that talent in front of you that you can then interview. So why is it important? And then how are you doing it? It's There's a lot of things you need to do as a design leader. And I think the hiring is probably first among equals. It's not the only thing that's important. But if you get your team composition and structure wrong, Things aren't going to go well. And by when I say hiring, I don't just simply mean like interviewing people. I mean thinking really carefully about the component or the structure of the organization that you want to have. So you have people in squads, but will you have a research director? What level should that person be? Do you have a design system? How would you build this? Do you have service designers? If so, why? What part of the product they look at? So often I go in, I think the last three or four jobs I've gone in and built a team. So this is, I'm talking to more people working perhaps in startups and scale-ups like I've done. So first you have to understand the roles you're hiring for. And then you need to go out and get people excited about coming to work with you. So that's quite hard work, you know. So do mentoring. I'm continually mentoring to try and think about the next generation of designers. Doing podcasts like this one or talking. Um, I'm members of Slack groups where I support other designers. I do portfolio reviews. So continually just trying to nurture a talent pipeline, if that doesn't sound too cheesy, and then making sure that you have another sort of set of values that is right for the team, that perhaps your first few hires, you you might look at the values of the organisation, but then you want to think about the values of your team, what do you stand for, what kind of personality do you want to have, what kind of, what do you see, um, potential, what do you mean by potential? and work with your team to define this. And then when we hire people, there's, as I said, there's a cultural ad. So that hiring is actually, there's a multitude of things that underpin hiring that make you sure that your team is like running really well, really well structured. And your job is to sort of like make sure people get the right people come into that team in the right place and that they're onboarded and they're supported very well and set up for success. 
you talked a couple of times about nurturing talent and people coming in. And I think one of the things that's very obvious to me is that we as an industry, we're not really doing enough for the people coming in. There's there's barely any support. There's barely, I, I know there are, you know, articles and, and YouTube videos and, and all that, but but as in peer-to-peer support, there's not a lot of that. So if you, a lot of, I assume a lot of senior people, senior designers, maybe design leaders are listening to this. What could they do to give back to the community and to help these people just coming in get to the point they are at? There's there's a few structured things out there. Um, there's a thing called the Entrepreneurs, I can't, I can't speak today, Entrepreneurs Club run by a man called Giles, which is fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, I've not been able to be as involved in that as I really wanted to be. But that's something you could perhaps reach out to them and see if they need support. They're trying to bring out people who are underrepresented in the industry, find them jobs and get them supported. I do some volunteer teaching. I support some entrepreneurs, clubs to try and help them understand the role of design and the kind of people that they should be hiring. I do some volunteer mentoring. Some of the universities have reached out to me to do things like portfolio reviews, which I do. So there's a there's a bit of voluntary work that I do, and there's there's so many people looking for it. So I think maybe even just putting up, deciding the kind of sector or group of people that you'd like to help, and you can tweet. That's one way to look at it. Although that might just still like rule out people who really need the help. So there's perhaps other organisations and different uh, places you can go and try and find people there's quite a few sort of like local youth groups or charities that are trying to get underrepresented people into creative industries so do a bit of research and you can find these organizations and do some volunteering yeah i think uh, another example that's been on the podcast is just being able to offer portfolio reviews and just the other day i had someone write to me on linkedin after i think i gave her portfolio review a couple of times uh, back in 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 april or something i don't even remember i and she wrote to me to say i just got a job and she was just so thankful and and, and that was stuff like that that makes you want to do more of that so i think that you you know small steps and if you just want to help you can just put a message on linkedin and, and people would would love to have your half an hour or whatever so i think it's stuff like that that we need to do more of as people who've been in the industry for a while what are some of the things that you've seen junior designers just coming into the industry struggle with versus what are the things that you've seen more senior designers generally struggle with? Ooh, tricky question. Perhaps junior designers, well, they haven't got a story to tell. So it's really hard to get that first job because as I've described there, a lot of the signals that I'm looking for are for people who've already had a job and they're able to talk about how they've collaborated, how they've been able to ship, how they've learned something from a project. Junior designers often wouldn't have that. So try to maybe do some volunteering or tell the story about your degree show or whatever course you were on, you should have done a project. So be able to tell a story about that and what you've learned. So I think that's just like getting over the first hurdle is being able to give people the, the, the signals and the information, enough information for them to make a decision to hire you. And also, like, how do you demonstrate potential? So what, what could you do? That's another thing that the junior designers struggle with. And then I think junior designers actually on the job, it's there's all the stuff around being a designer. So like understanding the complexity of shipping stuff, understanding how to influence, how to tell the story of your design, how to present it, um, how to un- how to measure it. So there's the sort of hard design skills, but all the soft skills around it are things that you probably learn just through years of work. 
senior designers is more to do with, again, I think the soft skills about thinking about how you might understand different things that are going on in the organisation and connect them, how to look up and out from your work, how to manage upwards, how to understand stakeholders, how to be assertive and push back, how to really unpack what you're designing. So rather than thinking about beautiful execution, maybe being able to argue that you shouldn't be doing something at all, being able to do much more in-depth research or think about sort of longitudinal research or to think about much more difficult problems. So a junior designer might work on like a, a button or a small aspect of the site. A senior designer might work across an entire feature. And then more senior people would be thinking about the, the holistic, the entire product or how you make that consistent, or might be thinking about something six months in the future um, and how you might, what the um, future of the product might be. So the difference often is the same skills. It's the, the scale or the range of impact that you have between junior to senior is what the difference is. This might be a tricky one to answer, but you've mentioned potential a couple of times. And I'm wondering, how do you read potential, right? Sometimes even people themselves don't know they have the potential because how would you? It's in the future. So when you have someone in front of you, what makes you think, oh, this person will, will become someone in this field? Is it more of a gut feeling or are there specific things you're looking for? I think well, there's a bit of a gut feeling. Everyone has a gut feeling, but I try to ignore that because that could often be your sort of biases. I try to be aware of it and try to ignore a gut feeling. I think things that give that, that talk to me about potential are people who really love the job, who find it really interesting, who have opinions about different apps and why they like them, who maybe have worked really hard to get where they are, maybe did a career change or somewhere that they've done this sort of extra work to show that they really, really care. And I mentioned earlier that people doing extra work is um, you could end up limiting your group of people that you're hiring from because people with chronic illnesses, people with parents or caring prop, um, support they might not have the time to do this. So the kind of thing I'm talking about is maybe that they've been reading books or reading not just design books, but books about the industry or books about how to work with product people, that they're thinking around the problem, that they're thinking deeply, that they're trying to unpack why we work, how we work, um, that they're just looking more deeply rather than just thinking about a pretty interface. For me, that talks about potential. What's your take on generally design education versus being self-taught or just taking an apprenticeship or whatever? What, what's your thought on starting out? Gosh, I don't know. I think if you, if you're, if you can and you, you haven't got enough money or time to go to university, then there's a lot of apprenticeships and there's lots of, sort of short-term courses which seem to, people have seen do very well off the back of them. Some of them are perhaps a bit more of a, a factory um, and perhaps they're turning out a lot of designers that there's perhaps not jobs for. I'm not so sure. Uh, design education, I think from I've been doing some volunteer teaching in universities and often it's very difficult for people who are teaching the courses in universities to keep up with sort of modern product design techniques because there's so much that goes on outside just actually creating an interface and people are being taught how to create an interface when actually... You should be thinking about how to do effort versus value mapping with your product and tech person because that's a design activity. The Looking at roadmap is a design activity. Thinking about what KPI you should measure is a design activity because all of this impacts your design. 
So I think the traditional design education is quite focused on craft rather than all of the things that you need to do in order to produce a fantastic product design. I think this focus on craft, it's naturally what's going to happen in the beginning of your career. At some point in time, ideally, this transition should happen where instead of focusing on the craft and the tools, you should start thinking about the, the 10,000 foot view or you know, the future, the strategy, uh, the KPIs, all the things that you've just mentioned. How does that transition happen? Is it just something that you just have to wait for it to happen over time or are there shortcuts you can take to get there? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Actually, I've kind of something I've seen just people have over time as they get more experienced. I think it just takes time. Some people it might take less time than others, which is why often you see in job ads when people mention like years experience required. I don't think that's strictly fair. But I think in order to deepen your practice to understand how things work in the real world, it's not something you can just know overnight. I think it has to be quite a bit of lived experience and also to give you that innate confidence to be able to stand your ground, to be able to argue, to sort of say, oh, I've seen it before. I mean, that's actually a really good way to describe what needs to happen. Being able to say, yeah, I've seen it before and it played out like this. So I think maybe we should try this um, or I've seen this before and this bad thing happened. So we should avoid it and try this different thing. That experience is always part of your craft. It does take time to just know how things work, how situations play out, how you should tackle a particular situation that takes time and i think that's okay it's okay yeah so it's patience and they just keep working i guess uh, we're, we're nearing the end a couple more questions for you you wrote an, another article than the one i was referring to earlier where you i'm, I'm gonna just i'm just gonna quote because i i think it, it says a lot about your idea of what a designer should be so it goes like this quote i believe that to ship great products you need to move from a genius designer working alone to save the world then to the lone designer in the crew feeding this great development beast doing continuous delivery to someone who facilitates the team to make great decision to support design in other words you need a designer as a facilitator and i don't mean facilitating workshops for clients end of quote let's unpack this i think what you said there pretty much sums up everything I've been saying in this interview, that being a designer is more than creating beautiful Figma files. It's getting them built. It's working with people to build them. It's understanding what you need to build. It's understanding the business. It's compromising, working with product and tech to maybe um, something can't be built. What would be a simpler version? If you have a big vision, how do you turn this into like small incremental changes in order to get there? How do you know that you're on the right course? So design is about, it's about all these relationships and conversations and contexts and being able to navigate this in order to get something absolutely fantastic in people's hands. And it might not be the first thing you started thinking about, but there's no way that you're going to get something great in someone's hands if you lock yourself in a room and come out with a beautiful, beautiful Figma file, because you might not be able to build it. It might not be what somebody wants. You might not be able to get it on the roadmap. It might be actually the wrong solution. It might be massively over complex. There's so many different things you have to consider before something actually gets built. So your job is to navigate all of this to make sure that you're putting the right efforts versus value versus business versus customer needs. All of this kind of stew of information that you have to navigate your way through and still have your vision and create what you want to and make sure it's as good as possible but not too good because obviously you, you you need to be commercial as well. So you don't want to over-engineer a solution. So all of this 
takes uh, a lot of navigating, a lot of facilitating, a lot of conversations, a lot of compromise and commitment and assertiveness in order to make your vision a reality. And a Figma file isn't really a product design. It's just the first step. I love that. That's a, that's a good, that's a great answer. I, that, should, that should be a quote. Maybe you've already answered this, but maybe you have something else as well. Uh, we're moving on to the last two questions at the end that I ask everyone. So what's one thing you wish more designers would know? So one thing I wish more designers, well, actually, several things I wish more designers would know. The, there's this whole debate, should designers code? Well, probably not, but they should know how things get built so they can understand, like, is the thing they're designing actually buildable? Another thing they should be know is how strategy works, how to balance what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it, and then how to have the confidence to be able to understand the rest of the business, be able to talk to the rest of the business and make sure that the design has the credibility and the impact that it deserves. Uh, often designers don't like to get involved in business or they let product do the talking for them. Like designers trying to be part of that conversation and trying to be as, as commercial um, and user-centered, that's the balance. So that's that's a loads of things I wish they would know. <laughs> and how do you reckon the future of design as an industry looks like? Well, there's there's been a few new AI tools come out that are sort of automatically building interfaces. So that's interesting. I was thinking, would, what, what impact will that actually have? Possibly not that much because for real product design, you really need to understand like, the problem you're solving, what that's what the pro proposition is, like the value proposition, um, what's going to make your design stand out. And that's not something that can be like sort of cut and pasted with artificial intelligence. So perhaps design would be moving away from just focusing on the interface to thinking a lot more about what problems are solving, what the wider the wider context of the design needs to be, and how to really make something that, that solves a need that people might not know that they've solved or to solve a need better than anyone else has. That's how innovation happens. So I think the future of design is to perhaps think less about the interface and more about the whole problem, the whole product the whole service and the the whole person who's going to be ended up using it great jane this has been a pleasure where where can people read more about you find out what you're writing uh, you know all the, all that good stuff i really need to have a website but i don't it's terrible um i bought i actually bought a really cool url um and i've done nothing with it i'm ashamed so yeah probably just there's two stories in medium from about four years ago and there you are <laughs> sorry i need to do something that's my New Year's resolution. Right. We'll just put your LinkedIn in the show notes so people can find you that way if they want to. Once again, Jane, it's been a delight to have you here. Thanks a lot for taking the time. And I'm sure we'll get to catch up soon again. Thank you for having me, Christian. They were brilliant questions. I really enjoyed that. Thanks. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Since you've made it this far, I hope you found this useful. And if you did, you should know there's much more content just like this on the way. So if you want to learn more about how designers can impact businesses, please consider subscribing and maybe sharing the episode with others. And before I say goodbye, remember that you can find show notes and links for this episode and others on our website, designmeetsbusiness.co. Catch you in the next one.